present moment. I don't know what other moment you could possibly pay attention to. And then non-judgmentally. And that turns out to be very, very difficult. Because when you start to watch your own mind, it's got judgments about virtually everything, including how I'm doing. How I'm breathing. We already established you're not breathing. You would be in deep trouble if you had to breathe. The breathing is just part of the sort of repertoire of having a body. But it's an incredibly interesting thing if you start to pay attention to it. Incredibly interesting. And calming and focusing and penetrating in the sense that it actually brings you to a capacity of seeing that's deeper than ordinary seeing, hearing that's more vivid than ordinary hearing. Why? Because we show up for it in the moment. So it's known in a way that's not mediated by thought. You can bring thought into it, but you know, I was sitting on retreat last week at uh, the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts. And any of you, how many of you have sat there or know the place? Okay, so you've been on retreat there. Well, the heating system just bangs a lot. And at a certain point, Joseph Goldstein, who was guiding the meditation, the heating system going like this, just said the following words. He said, nobody hears the heating system. You're not hearing the heating system. You're hearing bang, 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 and thinking the heating system. Okay? But we lose the bang, 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 and go immediately to the heating system. We've kind of lost some very, very deep richness that has to do with almost a, a hidden dimension, this dimension of awareness that has its own way of knowing, that's non-conceptual and that's much deeper. And that, again, is akin to intuition, it's akin to insight, it's akin to seeing beneath the surface of things, beneath appearance, beneath one's thoughts, prejudices and opinions, to that aha, oh, a connection that no one on the planet has ever seen before. This is powerful stuff, and it's very generative, it's very creative, and as I said, education is about drawing forth and nurturing. Well, the word in Pali, the original language of the Buddha for meditation, there's no such word. I mean, the word used is bhavana. And bhavana actually means development. So meditation, with this quality of paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally, it's like, it's the path of full development of our humanity or our capacity for being whole. Am I making any sense to you? Yeah. It's generalizable across all ages. And it's not algorithm driven. So it's not like I'm going to tell you at the end, this is how you do it for two-year-olds. This is how you do it for three-year-olds. This is how you do it for 23-year-olds. It's like that's part of the juice is figuring out. How the first place to do it, although it's a non-doing, that's why I was joking about it being really nothing. It's not doing, it's being awake. It's already part of our repertoire. It's not like we have to find it. It's more like all we need to do is nurture it, honor it, recognize it even, and learn to inhabit it to a certain degree and balance out that critical thinking with something larger that can hold emotion, that can hold social situations, relational things with people, with animals, with plants, with the sky, with the earth with fairy tales and all of the characters in fairy tales, and with subject matters like physics 
or French or whatever. And have you had the experience like a good teacher can teach anything and bring it to life? I mean, I often thought that one skillful way of teaching uh, science in high school would be to, to, to take a car apart. And like everything, you could pull on every aspect of that car and teach everything from material sciences to combustion to chemistry to physics to, you know, sort of uh, uh, mechanics. I mean, everything. Just out of a car. Well, you could do it out of anything. And a good teacher do that. Why? Because they're really in touch with their subject. They sort of passion for it. And they're in that passion shared. It's like, on the other hand, how many of you have been to a school where you take some subject like Japanese history and now you're immune, immunized against Japanese history for the rest of your life? <laughs> or mathematics, and then you've had your injection of mathematics and you're immune to mathematics. Like, ah, you know, you've got antibodies to algebra. <laughs> it happens. It happens. This is not as far into our culture as it may sound. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not basically advocating that we you know, adopt some other culture. What I'm talking about is something that's absolutely universal. William James put it this way, the faculty of voluntarily bringing back a wandering attention over and over again. Just that is the very root of judgment, character, and will. No one is compassui if he have it not. An education which should improve this faculty would be the education par excellence, but it's easier to define this ideal than to give practical instructions for bringing it about. Okay? He wrote this in, you know, he, the, the, the Principles of Psychology was first published in 1890, but he is a, it's just courtroom evidence that he had no, no knowledge of Buddhist meditative practice, which is all about bringing back a wandering mind, a wandering attention when it wanders off. And, and ask yourself for a moment, how many of you would say that meditation is a part of your daily life? It's about 40%. That's pretty good for San Francisco. <laughs> So, and those, how many of you have no experience whatsoever of meditation in any form that, that at least you tell yourself you have no experience of meditation in any form? It, it, it isn't true, of course, but anybody want to, like, just total beginners? Yeah, well, great, welcome. You have everything everybody else wants, which in the Zen tradition they call beginner's mind. But it's really all about hearing what's here to be heard including what the mind will label nothing, but you can't hear nothing any more than you can hear a heating system. Or seeing what's here to be seen, or feeling what's here to be felt, or knowing what's here to be known. And I mean a knowing that, doesn't, that isn't anchored entirely in thinking. There are many more senses than five. There are all sorts of senses, like proprioception, like knowing where your hand is, or the whole feel of your body. This is a sense. If you lost it, you would be in deep trouble. There's another sense called interoception, which is knowing how you feel inwardly, in your organ systems and so forth. And usually we're lucky and we just get away with it for a very long time. And we don't appreciate how amazing the human organism is. And how, as Thich Nhat Hanh likes to say, how enjoyable your non-headache is. You know? 
We just take so much for granted that we walk around on these little footpads, you know, and it's amazing. It's an incredible balancing act. We just take it totally for granted until, you know, you lose it. Until you lose some of the nerve pathways. As my mother is having to deal with at age 91, and where she, you know, she can't quite feel the feet in the old way, and so she's much more at risk of falling. It's terrifying. It's like this body, which carried me all of, the, all of a sudden, it stops working the same way. Don't worry, it's just called aging. But it happens. It's not forever. And so the power of actually being in our life fully and appreciating while we have it, I mean, that's like education across the lifespan. Why should we ever stop learning and growing and transforming or becoming what we actually already are? So, um, whoops, going in the wrong direction here. This is something I stumbled across 30 or 40 years ago in a book on mathematics that I didn't understand a single word of the book except for this appendix. Seriously, the laws of form. This guy wrote, G. Spencer Brown wrote, to arrive at the simplest truth as Newton knew in practice requires years of contemplation. Not activity, not reasoning, not calculating, not busy behavior of any kind, not reading, not talking, not making an effort, not thinking, simply bearing in mind what it is one needs to know. And yet those with the courage to tread this path to real discovery are not only offered practically no guidance on how to do so, they're actively discouraged and have to set about it in secret, pretending meanwhile to be diligently engaged in the frantic diversions and to conform with the deadened personal opinions which are continually thrust upon them, and I might add by their academic colleagues. (laughs) It's pretty... I thought it was just a powerful insight and very powerful statement of this other way of knowing. Equally valuable. And the beauty of it is that when you bring these different ways of knowing together, then something happens in the seeing and the feeling and the knowing. And don't forget, if you think I'm talking about seeing in some kind of abstract way, all of science is based on feeling the universe. Only we don't feel the universe with such great sensitivity in certain ways. Yes, blue and red light, we can do that with the eyes. But when it comes to starlight, for instance, we need greater sensitivity. So we develop telescopes and spectrophotometers and and then we can feel it and x-ray telescopes and infrared telescopes and expand. So what we're doing with scientific instrumentation is just feeling the world. That's all it is. And it's exciting because the world is feeling us right back. Feeling is reciprocal, like touch. Okay? And then you can start to ask, well, what is the mind that's feeling the universe? And is it localized? I mean, we can easily point to the brain, but show me your mind. Well, you know, six-year-olds love this. And they'll meet you in that ground and, and engage. And then about other people's minds, too. Because you can read a lot by, if you start to pay attention, say, to bodies and body language or voice and tone of voice. And then tone of voice is very related to poetry. Because as soon as poetry comes alive, 
it's not just reading some dead words from some dead person off some dead page, but it's like, say, recite it. Rumi, for instance, on the same subject as G. Spencer Brown, today, like every other day, we wake up empty and scared. Whoa. That's 900 years old. But how many of you ever experience anxiety in your life? Ever? Any, anybody here ever under any stress? I mean, real stress where it grabs you by the throat and you just feel like, I'm decomposing. Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and scared. Don't open the door of your study and begin reading. Hmm? Take down a musical instrument. What's the closest musical instrument at hand? Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the earth. There are so many different subjects out there that are actually trying to wake us up, remind us, remind us, and rebody us as fully embodied, miraculous human beings. Krishnamurti. We may be highly educated, but if we are without deep integration of thought and feeling, our lives are incomplete, contradictory, and torn with many fears. And as long as education does not cultivate an integrated outlook on life, it has very little significance. Education is to see the significance of life as a whole. Or to see, I would say, that we don't know what the significance of life is, and then inquire which is really what the heart of meditative awareness is about, is inquiry. It becomes an adventure, like to wake up. So just to sort of give you a few images, uh, here's one of the students in Cherry's classroom. Now, these students are all like old. I mean, this is like more than 10 years ago. So they're in their 20s and 30s, and she can talk to them and has and follows up with them. Uh, how their lives have been affected by this. And they have very interesting things to say. You'll notice that the kids have their eyes closed and are cultivating mindfulness and using various methods. This one's lying down. Usually we try to keep kids awake in the classroom. Here, you know, we actually invite them to lie down and fall awake. It's a huge challenge. Lie down and fall awake. Take some practice. They are actually practicing. This is the exact same. I could show you hundred, you know, same kinds of pictures of our patients in the medical center doing these exact same practices. Sitting meditation, guided body scan. Here's the sitting meditation. Another picture. It looks like they're doing nothing. Hey, there's so much curriculum. What are these kids doing nothing for? Well, you see, it isn't nothing. This non-doing is in some way the doorway to everything because it tunes the mind. Even say the San Francisco, is there a San Francisco Philharmonic Orchestra? Or San Francisco Symphony. Uh, Do they tune their instruments before they give a concert? Well, 
Even those great San Francisco musicians, they have to tune their violins and so forth, and tune to each other. That You could think that that's what this is. You tune the instrument before you take it out on the road. Mindful Hatha Yoga. Uh, this is made more interesting by the fact that they had two pet parakeets in the classroom, and they would fly around the classroom and land on these trees. And, and part of the challenge is to not lose your balance if you get distracted. Okay? These are all skills that have tremendous value in the field of uh, work, in the field of living your life. I mean, if you learn physical balance, then it's not a far cry to learn emotional balance or, or sort of uh, uh, cognitive balance. And this is eating one-eighth of a candy bar. We use raisins in the stress reduction clinic, but they use one-eighth of a candy bar and, and, and go through a mindful eating exercise. And the kids very often wind up saying things like, wow, I felt more satisfied with that one-eighth of a candy bar than I usually feel with four candy bars. So that's like an interesting revelation. And this is mindful walking in the schoolyard. So that's the full spectrum of practices, lying down, sitting, standing, and walking, that, uh, that uh, the Buddha prescribed, actually. The four fundamental meditative practices. And this is going on, by the way, in the Mormon school system. It's spread throughout the school system, okay, because it's a very tight-knit community. Cherry rapidly decided she better teach the parents what was going on, because these strange stories were getting back to the parents about what the kids were doing. So she brought the parents in. Very often, because it's a tight-knit Mormon community, both parents would come. And so she gave them a 10-week at her own expense. She didn't charge for it or anything. On her own time, gave them a course in this. And then it just spread through the whole school system. And all the teachers were doing it, because, because, and she trained them in it, because the kids and the younger sisters and brothers, they wanted to learn this stuff earlier in the second grade and stuff like that. It's interesting, it's possible that these kinds of things can happen, and improbable, and she didn't get lynched. Uh, in fact, quite the contrary. I mean, as you heard from this other teacher who wrote to her, I have a long kind of thing that I won't read to you uh, uh, about like how they handled a particularly stressful thing in their, in their classroom, but you can read about it in that book that I was telling you about. Um, but what I'd like to do is actually bring this part of the talk to a close, uh, make a few more comments, and then uh, open it up for questions, okay? Um, William James, who I quoted before, said, I have no doubt whatever that most people live, whether physically, intellectually, or morally, in a very restricted circle of their potential being. They make use of a very small portion of their possible consciousness, much like a man who, out of his whole bodily organism, should get into a habit of using and moving only his little finger. So, uh, hopefully, education would address that in some way. We all have reservoirs of life to draw upon, of which we do not dream. There are, um, on the website of the uh, Association for uh, Mindfulness in Education, there's uh, 
a paper by a colleague of mine uh, at the Mind and Life Institute, Arthur Zions, who's a professor of physics at uh, Amherst College and who is a marvelous pedagogue who teaches a class uh, with an art professor at Amherst College has been teaching it for years on uh, seeing. He's, he's a, a, a physicist who studies light and you know, quantum light phenomena and he works with an artist, a visual artist and they are bringing these two ways of knowing together. And he wrote a paper called Love and Knowledge Recovering the Heart of Learning Through Contemplation. And I'll just read you uh, one little piece of it. Uh, well, first, he quotes from a fellow named Parker Palmer. How many of you know the work of Parker Palmer and what he calls teacher formation? Parker is a remarkable person whose whole life is committed in a certain way to bringing a contemplative dimension into education. And he's had a very, very profound effect. I would recommend a book of his called uh, The Courage to Teach. Because ultimately when you walk into a classroom, whether it's kindergarten or whether it's junior high school or whether it's you know, college, you're basically bringing your entire being into that classroom. And fundamentally, in order for it to be an authentic experience, you have to be awake to the fact that you're bringing your entire being into it. Otherwise, you'll easily drop into autopilot where you'll teach what you know but you'll forget that there's a kind of dynamic going on because it's like you know, they don't know, you in part, they better learn. Uh, but there's another way to do it, which is drawing it out, having an adventure. Even if you teach the same thing over and over again, it's never the same. Why? Because every moment is different. And funny thing, I'm different. If I'm willing to be different in every moment, I might stay awake. I might stay excited about the material. I might actually learn more about the subject over time because it's like I'm continually growing into it or it's growing on me. That kind of passion transmits itself. And even if you don't love physics, all of a sudden you might feel how amazing it is that, you know, no matter where you throw an instrument, like a ball or whatever, it always knows how to come down to the ground. No matter what trajectory, you start from back here, you start from there. It always knows how it does it. You don't know how it's going to do it, but it knows. And then maybe if you held that whole system, you could figure out what was involved in getting that ball to go through, say, a hoop or something like that. And it begins to be dawn on you that maybe there are principles here that are understandable, that might reveal certain aspects of how the world works that are relevant, that are interesting, and that could explain an awful lot. Let's see. This is Arthur Zion speaking. We are well-practiced well at educating the mind for critical reasoning, critical writing, and critical speaking, as well as for scientific and quantitative analysis. Uh, but is this sufficient? In a world beset with conflicts, internal as well as external, isn't it of equal, if not greater, importance to balance the sharpening of our intellects with the systematic cultivation of our hearts? That's exactly what I was talking about with awareness. 
In fact, let me just state, so if it's not clear, that the word mindfulness, the word mind in all East Asian languages, all Asian languages, the word for mind and the word for heart is the same word. Okay? So when we hear mindfulness, in order to really understand what it is, you have to simultaneously hear heartfulness. Do not the issues of social justice, the environment, and peace education all demand greater attention in a more central place in our universities and colleges? He's you know, more thinking of higher education. Yes, certainly. But while this is undoubtedly true, my presentation will not address the issue of balancing intellectual accomplishments with good works. Rather, what I would like to suggest is that knowing itself remains partial and deformed if we don't develop and practice an epistemology of love instead of an epistemology of separation. This is a quantum physicist speaking. Harvard's motto is veritas or truth. Knowing is, in this view, the central project of higher education. I, remain, however, I maintain, however, that truth itself, veritas itself, eludes us if we bring... Uh, to the world and to each other in epistemology of separation only. Our conventional epistemology hands us a dangerous counterfeit in truth's place, one that may pass for truth but which is in fact partial and impoverished. Parker Palmer points out that every way of knowing becomes a way of living. Every epistemology becomes an ethic, basically what Krishnamurti is saying. He argued that the current epistemology has spawned an associated ethic of violence Surely science has brought enormous advances, but we can't turn away from the central fact that the modern emphasis on objectification predisposes us to an instrumental and manipulative way in being in the world. And then Arthur says, I hope to convince you that a contemplative practice can become contemplative inquiry, which is the practice of an epistemology of love. Now, what does that, that mean? Sounds very, you know, sort of highfalutin and and, uh, and uh, arcane, but actually he's pointing to something very simple, and that is teach yourself. If you're a teacher, use yourself as the instrument of the teaching. In order to do that, you have to in some way know thyself. That's what paying attention is all about. It's actually learning the inner landscape, what I like to call the mindscape, the bodyscape, the heartscape, the nowscape, the present moment being the only time that we ever have in which to love or to learn. And that's usually like dismissed or ignored or passed over because we don't actually cultivate the passion, cultivate the passion for learning, cultivate the, the interest in the subject in a way that has relevance to the subject, the learner. It's all just stuff, objectified. What if we dropped subject and object and, and got into learning, seeing, growing, healing, touching? This has very, very practical applications in the curriculum, which I'm not going to go into, but Cherry Hamrick, for instance, took what her experience was and figured out how to do it in her classroom in a way that was like really extraordinary. Hundreds and hundreds and thousands of teachers are doing that and working in constraints that are sometimes like straitjackets because you have to be very, very careful about what parents think you're doing with their children, especially when it comes to anything having to do with the mind. But there's a way to do it, I think, and part of it is like a lot of it is around anxiety and depression and stress reduction and suicide, you know, and all sorts of things that kids nowadays are at risk for, including existential despair. 
And, and we can address that in ways that have some kind of validity. And there are all sorts of therapies that have been developed for this. But the fact is, you don't want to wait until your students or your children are in need of that in a therapeutic situation or a healthcare situation. Why not start when they're okay, when they're healthy? And also recognize the institutional ways in which small-mindedness winds up constraining the classroom in ways that don't contribute to education at all, but they contribute to, in a sense, immunization against love, love of learning. Whatever it is. I'd like to actually, before we open it up for questions and so forth, I'd like to actually uh, invite you to, uh, let's see. Well, um, to um, do a little experiment with me. So I'm going to put this thing up on the board, which is like uh, up on the screen, which is a movie. If you've and, and what I'm going to ask you to do is, I'm going to push the play button on the movie, and, and I'm going to ask you to watch the movie, okay, very carefully. And you'll notice that, I wonder if we could have the lights dimmed for a bit in front, so everybody can really see this. Is that something you can control from? Yes, you can. Okay, so you'll notice that there are uh, six people, three in white shirts and three in black shirts, and there are three elevators. Okay, and uh, there's there's one basketball, and when you the movie when I push the play button, you'll see that uh, there there are actually two basketballs. They're not just one, and the black shirts are passing a basketball among themselves, and the white shirts are passing a basketball among themselves. And your task will be to tell me when the movie's over and it's going to go by very fast. How many times the people in the white shirts pass the basketball? Do you get it? It's easy. It's just count the number of times that people in the white shirts pass the basketball. Okay? And to do it in silence, so no conversation among yourselves, so that everybody will have their own experience of paying attention to uh, the task. So I'm going to press the play button. Okay. Uh, now, I heard a little Twitter or two in the room, but let me ask you for the number. Uh, how many people? Give me a number. 14. So did you hear, first of all, there was a huge 14 with a tremendous amount of conviction. And, and then some renegades said 13, 16, 12, Thirteen and an eighth. Okay, so now look, let's face it, okay, simple task, right? Just count the number of times they pass the basketballs. And we're already getting a be something approximating a bell curve. Thank you, yeah, for bringing it up. Something approximating a bell curve. And, and you've all been highly educated. So even counting 
turns out to be a sort of statistical, you know, probable, probabilistic thing. And now, uh, raise your hands if you saw something, without saying anything, if you saw something interesting or strange happen during this movie, raise your hands. Okay. Yeah, people have seen this before. Uh, because not, not that proportion of people ever raises their hands. It's like 5% of people see it the first time. Or maybe it's just San Francisco, I don't know. But now I'm going to play it again, and I'm going to ask you to not count, but just watch the movie. Okay? And also listen to the sound in the room. So do it as silently as possible. Let's lower the lights again. So let's have the lights up again. And listen to what's going on in the room. Listen, listen to what's going on in the room. Okay? Because, you see, how many of you did not see the person in the gorilla suit the first time around? Raise your hand. It's a lot more than 50%, so a lot of you want to have it both ways. That's not that different from school or... So again, raise your hands, and those of you in the front row, turn around. I want you to just see. How many of you did not see the gorilla the first time? Okay, that's more like it. Okay? Now, it was on the screen. It's not like I switched movies on you. It went into your eyeballs the first time. Uh, by the way, is there anybody who still didn't see the gorilla? This always happens. Don't feel badly about it. Let's lower the lights one more time. And I'll draw your attention to right this side of the screen. So you're busy counting, counting, counting. How many times the white shirts are passing the basketball. Meanwhile, something that could be potentially relevant or significant in your field of vision is completely tuned out. Completely tuned out. We just did the experiment. And uh, the vast majority of people did not see that gorilla, even though it, your eyeballs saw it. Do you see what I mean about the, the cognitive... Uh, the co did you see it? Were you in position to be able to see it? Oh, I should have moved your seat. I'll show it to you afterwards on the screen. Uh, what's that? Say it again. I was, I thought that's what you said. See, some people are still fixated on that. Why? Because we've been so trained that, hey, wh what's your motivation for asking that question? Take a look at it. What? Yeah, that's right. You've got to get the right answer. And you want to know whether you got the right answer or someone else got the right answer. And we've been trained that way. So now, let's say I told you what the answer was. And then you, you got the right answer. Then there'd be a little bit of like self-inflation. I got the right answer. I didn't see the gorilla, but at least I got the right answer. <laughs> That's what's going on in Washington, folks. You're paying attention to what you think is the problem. 
Meanwhile, the problem, which is like staring you right in the face, is completely tuned out. It's like... And these are educated people. And well-intentioned. Yeah, the children, uh, I haven't done it widely enough so that I can tell you statistics, but the children see it right away. First of all, they never follow instructions. You know? But adults, you know, you do what you're told, right? So it's like, I could have set it up so that 99% of you would not have seen the gorilla. You know, I mean, there are ways to do it so that you set up a certain kind of expectation and make it even more juicy that you've got to get the right answer. Okay? And the more you focus on what you think is the problem, and is it not true that we set ourselves up like that all the time? Has, have you ever had the experience that a family member tried to like, get you to see something differently? No, I'm only seeing it this way. And like you, it can't penetrate until finally, maybe, you wake up and you realize, my God, there are a thousand other ways to look at this thing, but I've gone 20 years looking at it this one way and grinding my own axe over and over and over again, and we do that with everything. Subjects, objects. We fall into habits of seeing and hearing and feeling and tasting and touching. And they're so habitual, we are completely out of touch. Whoops. So we're not seeing, we're not hearing, we're not feeling. You could say that. It's more like we're on autopilot, more asleep than awake. I'm saying that in order for the classroom to come alive, for both the teacher and the student, everybody's got to show up. There are ways to cultivate that showing up because we've, even in early childhood, are conditioned to in some way or other get lost in our heads or in this or that. Uh, and I'm not talking about damping down on people's dreaminess or creativity. I'm talking about waking up to the beauty of life in an age-appropriate way so that and also to the various learning styles that are available to us so that some people are not visual and they're just not going to get it visually but they might get it auditorily or some other way. And so there's a, a great deal of skill involved in how to actually connect with people in ways that make the subjects interesting. And then, of course, it's like, you know, enlivening for the teacher because you have rapport in the classroom. Then you tend not to have behavioral issues. Or if you have behavioral issues, they can become the object of attention. Hey, what's going on in the classroom all of a sudden? We drop into the feeling that was what I didn't read about the kids and what they said about this very stressful encounter that they had with changing classrooms and being disoriented in the school. And they handled it in an entirely different way from the classes that weren't practicing mindfulness. And they stayed in the present moment, and they stayed in their own feeling, and they stayed in their own connection. And then you can deal with emotional upheavals, and whether they're yours or somebody else's, in entirely different ways. And one girl said to somebody else after the person was being badly teased, he said, just because his mind is waving doesn't mean your mind has to wave. But that's pretty interesting insight. Would you like to try a couple more of these? <laughs> very shortly, very briefly. <coughs> But I think this is a kind of graphic example of how, you know, and you could use this in the classroom, and these are available on the web. You can pull them down. You can, like, play with kids around attentional issues, around awareness issues, and actually reinforce something. So it's not, uh, even the word meditation, none of this has to be called meditation. It's just paying attention. In fact, if you know anything about Dzogchen and uh, Tibetan meditation, they talk about non-meditation. The real meditation is called non-meditation. It's called your life. 
It's called not missing your life, being present for your life, not getting caught in name or form. Well, that requires awareness. In fact, that's all it is, is awareness. You drop in and you're already here. Does it require a certain kind of refining? Yes, but not the awareness itself. That's already pristine. It's more like our ability to rest in it, to trust it, to not have to have the answer to everything, to actually rest in not knowing when that's appropriate, to being patient, to being open to how other people see things or feel or hear them. So here's another one. We won't do too many, but... Uh, okay. Um, if we get down the lights again. This, here the, the invitation is slightly different. <coughs> this is not a movie. It's two conditions of the same picture. They're going to flash back and forth quite rapidly. And when you notice that and there's one thing in the picture that's going to be changing, Okay. When you notice what's changing, again, in silence, do you want to move over here so that you can see it more clearly? Just come right up here. There's plenty of room. When you see what's changing, I want you to just, in silence, raise your hand. That way we can get a sense of the kinetics of seeing in the room. Okay? So again, we'll do it in silence. And just raise your hand when you see what's changing. Hands are going up. Now, in the interest of time, I'm going to actually point out, if I can get... Hear that in the room, that groan? That groan is what we're talking about. The groan is... A moment of seeing. It's like an aha. Ah. Ah. Now, can anybody not see that bar going up and down? The what? The bar. <laughs> you see the bar going up and down? See, it takes us a while to see what's right in front of us. Okay? And this is called, the phenomenon in psychology is called change blindness. It, can anybody not see the bar going up and down now? I mean, it's so obvious, is it not? But until you see it, it's amazing. You don't see it. Right? And once you see it, you see it. So if we were able to, in some way, become more spacious and transparent and get out of our own way a little more, we might be actually able to see what's right in front of us with greater clarity and greater dispassion, so to speak, because it wouldn't be about I, me, and mine, the famous personal pronouns that uh, drive so much of what we do in a way that we ignore. So we'll lower the lights one more. We'll do one more. And then questions and we'll have a, a time for conversation. Uh, this one I particularly like because of the military metaphor, although it is, <coughs> it is the Canadian Air Force. So <coughs> I'm going to push play. Same rules apply. Raise your hand when uh, you see what's uh, changing. Okay, they're going up. And you can hear the ahas, the little eurekas. 
Okay, and again, in the interest of time, just notice under the wing here. No problem, it's only the engine. And again, when you see it, you can't not see it. Until you see it, you don't see it. It's coming into the eyes and you don't see it. Because we construct our reality. And very often our constructs are getting in the way of the actuality. Okay? Yeah? He said these are available on the web. Oh, well. You have to figure that out. <laughs> I gave you all the hints. I, of course, I can tell you, uh, we'll have the lights up. But, but again, I mean, part of the challenge is easy, you know. Think. What would you have to put in to Google in order to find this, you know? Gorilla, basketball, I don't know, you know. Uh. <coughs> okay, so it's like, sometimes it's important not to give the answer. I'm not going to tell you how many basketballs in times have passed, because it wasn't about that. It's not about the right answer. It's about loving something and seeing how easily we can get caught in our own acquisitional mode where we have to get something because then that will lead to a consequence that is good, whether it's a gold star or an A or uh, an acceptance letter from Harvard or whatever it is, as opposed to, as opposed to something that has its own intrinsic relational